a reality more than we know you know there's two sides to this story the earthly side and we'd think oh there's pain there's suffering but oh what about the heavenly side I was watching a little bit of the memorial of sister Erica and and they were talking about how many will miss her here but then they started to change the picture what about all the people she's greeting over there what about that they're getting ready for the next ones to come Oh my, it's what a great hour, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Good to be in the house of the Lord again. Good to be among friendly people who overlook all the mistakes you made in the announcements in the morning and all the little scriptures that you rushed through. And I'm, I'm glad there's people that pick it up, but I'm glad that there's people that catch it and still go on. So thank you for that. <laughs> and at uh, any rate, good to be in the house of the Lord. I, this morning I saw, I missed seeing her during the service, but Sister Susan Drost was back. It was good to have her back, and we, we welcome her. Tonight we've got another sister we don't often see anymore. That's Sister Carol Lentz. Happy to see you, Sister Carol. Greet Brother Sam for us, if you will, and it's good to see you. May God bless you. Anyway, good to have Brother Doug Lentz here. Brother Doug is from, he's the son of the Lentzes, and, and he's in Gatineau, Quebec area. Brother Doug has um, supported the different churches and works in Quebec in different places, and he ministers regularly for several churches. His home church is a little bit away, but he'll minister up there, and he'll be a support for other churches in the area. And um, Brother Doug has a couple of different hats he wears, and one is he's a, he's a, a travel agent, and not just a regular travel agent. He's specialized in adventure. He's very experienced, and He's the one that I always talk to when I need to plan a trip. So I, I was talking to him and planning the trip, and, and I always appreciate the support that he gives us, gives the ministry, and those that travel. Brother Doug has been a blessing in that respect. But he's also been a blessing as he comes to minister here. And uh, I've, I've always appreciated the studious approach. And, you know, Brother Doug is not an evangelist. Let's just clear that up. And if you don't know that, you'll recognize it very quickly. And the, and the thing that he does, there's not a lot of intro and there's not a lot of leads. It's just come in, come out. So anyway, we appreciate the gift, don't we? Yeah. And we're happy to have him here. So we want to invite him and, and ask him to come and just uh, speak to us. So as he comes, let's just um, in, invite him. Let's just sing a little bit. I want, I want to sing this. I was just thinking on us this morning and 
maybe I won't sing all of it, but the battle is the Lord's. You know, David, David, you know, Israel's going to come to a place where God's going to have the battle, but he has the battle for them now. And it was David facing Goliath. And if David looked at himself, and David would, would say it, but, you know, as he came to face Goliath, he actually made this statement. Don't worry, the battle is the Lord's. Yes. <laughs> Even though he was the one that's going to hold the stones. So whatever it is, the battle is the Lord's today. Let's sing this. We're going to invite our brother Doug to come. There is a sword in times of need that gives me hope, that brings me peace in every trial, through every test, my Savior stands in my defense. So when the road you walk leaves you tired and worn, all your strength is gone, and your heart feels torn, remember you all. While standing, if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And we're going to be reading verses 12 and 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. It says, And he stood before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long, and five cubits broad, and three cubits high, and set it in the midst of the court. And upon it he stood, and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands towards heaven. Shabara heads for a word of prayer. Precious Lord, we thank you, Father, for the opportunity and the privilege to gather together at your feet, to sing your praises, to worship you, 
Lord, we ask your blessing upon the meeting this evening, Lord Jesus, that you would break the, 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 your, the bread of your word to us this evening, Father, to strengthen our spiritual bodies, to help us to guide our footsteps, to carry out the work, Father, that you've asked each and every one of us to do, Lord. We ask your blessing and commit the rest of the service into your hands. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today's message, it's uh, entitled Solomon's Platform or Solomon's uh, Scaffolding. But uh, before I get into the, uh, the message, um, just to sort of explain a few things. Um, so yeah, as uh, uh, Brother Ed has mentioned, uh, my home church is in Quebec and our congregation is French. So when I preach, I preach in English, but I have uh, translators. Uh, and you know, so if I'm preparing a message that'll be one hour for everybody, when I cut out the translation all of it and just do it in English, all of a sudden my message is only about a half an hour. So I've, I've had my fingers kind of slapped before. It's like, man, your messages are too short, Doug. You've got to do something about that. So tonight I'm going to just try something a little bit different to try and fill in the time a little bit more. Uh, so before we get to the main course, I'm going to give you a couple of appetizers. If that's okay. All right? So... The first thing I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to just share with you something that uh, my wife and I encountered uh, recently um, on a trip to Central Asia. Uh, last June, we took a, a month off, and we went to explore um, five of these former Soviet uh, republics, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And while we were there, uh, before we left, actually, uh, one of the brothers in the church, he asked us, he says, are you going anywhere biblical this, this, this year and that? And, and at the time, I kind of said, well, no, no not, not this time. But then after we got there, I'm like, I'm kind of changing my mind here. I'm going to have to, to send them something. So can you please bring up the first uh, photo on the slide? So, so I, I sent them this photo, and I said, brother, this, this place we're at, the locals call it the gates of hell. Is that biblical enough for you? So we had to go there to see if, 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 if the, the gates would prevail against us, and they didn't. So, you know, it's all good. <laughs> but I'll, I'll joke aside, this is, this is a, a natural gas crater. Um, the, uh, in, in, in Soviet times, they were drilling for natural gas, and the sinkhole opened up, and the rig collapsed inside, and all this natural gas was coming up. So the engineers decided, well, we can't let it go on like that, so they decided to light it on fire, figuring that after a couple of days it would burn itself out, and that was 50 years ago. <laughs> so anyway, now you have photographic proof that we've been to hell and back. <laughs> but the other thing, though, all joking aside, is while we were there, um, I found out afterwards, actually, um, uh, doing a little bit of research about the region, is that there's a bit of a connection to the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Um, apparently, you know, when, when you read in the in scriptures, the Assyrian army came in at one point and they scooped up the ten northern tribes of Israel and carried them off into Assyria, and you never hear from them again. So they're called the ten lost tribes. But extra biblical sources sort of pick up what happened afterwards. They say apparently, um, the Israelites, the Syrians, put them, placed them on their eastern border uh, to be a sort of a buffer between them and the other countries outside of that. But when Babylon conquered Assyria uh, and the empire collapsed, the Israelites didn't want to 
head towards Babylon, they decided to take off the other way now that they're kind of free, and they kept moving east uh, through Central Asia and allegedly uh, as far as Afghanistan and northern Indian places like that. And on top of that, this region had a very strong Jewish presence uh, as well in Bukhara and places like that. And one of the things that we found out is there's a, a city there called Samarkand, and apparently in the local language it means city of the Sumerians. Apparently they were the ones who found it, and Samaria is the region of northern Israel. So these little connections. But you know, regardless of whether that's true or not true in that, uh, when we were there, uh, there was something about it that seemed kind of familiar. And I couldn't quite place my finger on it, and then I noticed the women. Everywhere I look, the women have long hair, they wear dresses, no makeup. I was like, wow, I'm surrounded by message women here, you know? And I, it felt so good to be in a society where people actually know what gender they are, you know? And so it's like, okay, I was, I was at peace with this. This was, this was good. I, I, I could handle this society. But um, my wife and I, when we were in Tajikistan, which is right on the Afghanistan border, and um, we were, uh, this woman, this local woman was showing us around uh, this, this city called uh, Kujand. And uh, one of the few people that actually spoke English. We, uh, we really wore out our Google apps, uh, Google Translate app. But anyway, uh, she was showing us around and she asked us at one point, she says, what, what, what religion are you? I thought, okay, so I said, well, we're Christians. But then I realized that for them, uh, all they know about Christianity is Russian Orthodox, because that's all that they had under the Soviet Union. Now, these people, since then, these, these countries in these stands are officially Muslim, but they're the weakest Muslims I've ever seen, okay? They have mosques, but they don't do the call to prayer. They, the average person there will only go to a mosque maybe once or twice a year. Maybe they'll do Ramadan, but they will still drink vodka and eat pork. Okay. <laughs> I, I've never seen Islam like that. They're so laid back. It's incredible. But anyway, we're talking with this. So, I'm, so we're talking this lady. She asked our, our, you know, our background. I said, okay, we're a Christian, but we're not Russian Orthodox. I said, we, uh, we believe the way it was in the Bible. That's the way we practice it. The way it was laid out by the apostles in the Bible, that's it. And, that, and I said, for example... The apostles said that a woman shouldn't cut her hair. So my wife doesn't cut her hair. Her reaction was unbelievable. She was like, well, duh. <laughs> okay. And I realized, so you know how Paul says that it's, that it does not nature itself teach that a woman shouldn't cut her hair? Well, I was watching this woman's reaction. That's exactly what it was. Well, this is, not, this is natural. This is the way it should be. And I, I'm like, and then, but then she explains why. And this really floored me. She says, yeah, she says, we, we, we don't cut her hair because it represents ownership. Her words, not mine. She says, yeah, we're, you know, as, as a young girl, we're under the ownership of our father and then our husband, you know. I'm like, okay. She's preaching to me a message here. And, and she says, yeah, she says, but what we do, she says, is when a woman is single... Uh, she doesn't cover her head. But if she's married, she'll put a scarf on her head like the woman on the, on the left. Okay? And so that's the sign that she's married. And when they get married, they put the ring on the right hand. But if they get divorced, they move to their left hand. So this way, 
From a distance, you can look at a woman, and without any words being said, you will know if she's married, single, or divorced. It's just brilliant. But, <laughs> but I'm like, some, uh, something biblical passed through there. And it's so ingrained in their society that it's like, they, it's like without thinking, you know? So it, it felt really good, <laughs> I have to admit. It was really nice to see. You know, like, uh, you know for us, it's, it's, it's such a struggle with society to live like this. And there's still a, uh, at least one place on earth where they're like, this is the norm, you know. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so it'd be great to see some missionaries get in there for the message. Anyway, so that's my first appetizer. Appetizer number two. In the mid-1400s, there was uh, a bunch of Jewish scholars uh, living in Spain, and uh, they were having debates, public debates, with the Catholic Church, with uh, scholars in the Catholic Church. And this was a time that was very rough on the Jews. Uh, eventually, in 1492, uh, Spain expelled, expelled all the Jews out, okay? And uh, were really persecuting them. But leading up to that, for the first few decades, um, there were these public debates and so the Jews, these Jewish scholars, were having debates with priests or Catholic scholars and that about why one religion is the correct one, okay? But in order to debate with the Catholics, one of the things that these Jewish scholars did is they, wanted, is they studied the writings of the early church fathers. And one of the guys that they spent a lot of time studying was Irenaeus, church age messenger number two, okay? And one of the things that stood out for them was the teachings of, that Irenaeus made about the, uh, the four faces of the cherubim, the lion, the ox, the man, the eagle. Okay. Now, Brother Branham, now Brother Branham talked a lot about this, about the, uh, the anointing of these four uh, faces of these four cherubim and that. And Brother Branham brought it into a lot of detail and explained it, and I'm not here to go through all of that. But the guy that got it really rolling was Irenaeus. Okay, he wrote a lot extensively about it. So these Jewish scholars, it intrigued them. So they started taking what Irenaeus said, comparing it to the, to the Torah, to the Old Testament scriptures and that, and they discovered this wonderful pattern. And uh, they, what they call it is the four levels of understanding scripture. Okay? Now, Brother Branham said that scripture has compound meaning. Well, these guys found a way to really break it down, okay? And they called them, they, they called, it was four levels, and they say each level is represented by one of these faces, okay? And they called it pardes. Pardes is the Hebrew word for paradise because the purpose of the cherubim it was to guard the way to the tree of life, okay? Because eventually we will ha we'll be allowed to eat from the tree of life. That was a promise to the overcomer. We're going back to paradise. And in Hebrew, uh, pardes is four letters, uh, P-R-D-S. And it's actually an acronym for these four levels. So the first level they call peshat, which means surface. It's a surface meaning. And it's basically the most basic way to read your Bible. It says what it means, it means what it says. No interpretation required, okay? And they associate that with the lion anointing because a lion is a pretty direct animal, okay? 
The next acronym, that REMES, is the Hebrew word for hint. And they see this as being, representing the symbolic or allegorical understanding of Scripture. Okay, parables would, be, would fall into this category. It says this, but it means that. Okay? So, you know, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a guy who plants a vineyard or whatever in that. So, that's the way to study that, and that's under the ox anointing. And the ox anointing is also what's on a pastor. And you can see why pastors, generally, their messages tend to revolve around this type of teaching. Okay? The third one, the derash, means to inquire or to seek. And it's the things you find in the Bible, right? Really studying it out, cross-referencing, going back and forth, and comparing in that. Well, that's a favorite uh, for the teachers. That's where they like to dwell. And this is under the man anointing, which is, Brother Branham said, that's what's on the teachers. The fourth level is called sud, and that's under the eagle anointing. And that is in the realm of the prophet. Sud, they say, that can only be, is where scripture can only be understood by a direct revelation from God. Okay? So, for example, book of Revelation, the number of the, of the beast, 666. Brother Branham, being a prophet, comes along and he says, oh, well, that's vicar the, the phrase vicarious filidae, you know, uh, that the title for the Pope. Bible never says that. Okay? You, you can study the Bible back and forth for thousands of years. You'll never find that. It took a prophet with a direct revelation of God to say, that's what it is. So, I mean, these guys don't even believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but somehow they're figuring this out. You know, but, you know, they're feeding on the message of this church messenger of the second age, I suppose. It's you know, <laughs> bound to happen some way. But they added a caveat to this. They realized that um, they, what they said is, no matter what you learn on the three deeper levels, whatever you learn must never, ever cancel out, negate, or contradict the surface meaning, the Peshat. Okay? Never. So, as an example of, okay, if that's true, here's how it would apply. So, Peter, the Apostle Peter, He's in Joppa, he's on the rooftop, and God lays out a picnic blanket full of kosher animals, or non, sorry, non-kosher animals, unclean food, and he says, kill and eat. And Peter's like, I can't, I can't do that, this is unclean. And God tells him, what I have blessed call thou not unclean. At that moment, some Romans showed up at this door, wanting to escort him to see Cornelius the centurion. And when he arrives, he tells Cornelius that I probably wouldn't normally come to see a Gentile because us Jews consider them unclean, but God gave me this vision, and I know now that if Gentiles are blessed by God, you are clean, and now I can have fellowship with you. But did God say that? No. He just showed them unclean animals. Peter went right to the remez, and he understood. God said that, but he meant that. But if we apply that rule, then it still can't contradict the surface meaning. What did God show him? Unclean food, or non-kosher food. If I've blessed it, 
you can eat it. Which means that from now on, Peter can still enjoy a ham sandwich <laughs> with his Gentile buddies. Okay? So, you know, now we can enjoy these foods. So both are correct. Okay? So I, I just, that, uh, something I wanted to share with you, because I, I found that amazing that, that these, these, these Jewish scholars could actually come up with an insight that just, it really lines up so well, you know, with what we understand in Scripture. Amen. All right. All right. Time for the main course. All right. So, Solomon's temple. So this, in Chronicles, what we just read, was the, uh, it was the dedication of the temple. Okay? And as you know, uh, David, uh, he wanted to build uh, the temple to God, but God wouldn't let him uh, because he had blood on his hands. Okay? So instead, the task was given to Solomon. And Second Chronicles is where we see the, the dedication of the temple, and we just read from chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Now, everything is ready. Solomon is about to make his dedication, and the Bible says this. So I'm going to read it again. And he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long and five cubits broad and three cubits high. And he'd set it in the midst of the court. And upon it he stood and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven. Now then Solomon goes on to, he continues to pray a very great and inspirational prayer of dedication. Now what I, the thing I want you to focus on right now is this platform or this scaffold that Solomon had built and he is now kneeling on. It tells us that the material that was used was bronze or brass. And Brother Branham tells us that that represents divine judgment. The Bible also gives us the dimensions, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high. Now, there's only one other object in the Bible that has these same dimensions, and it's also made of brass. And Solomon, being a student of the scripture, would have known what he was doing when he made this platform or the scaffold to these exact dimensions. So what is this other object? Well, we find it in Exodus chapter 27. If you turn to, uh, in your Bibles to Exodus 27, we're going to read from verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> It says, and thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar, be, uh, yeah, and the altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. So here we see what is often called the brazen altar. And it is exactly the same dimensions as Solomon's scaffold that he stood on, kneeled on, and raised his hands, dedicating the temple that he had constructed into the service of God. Now, this is no coincidence. So what we see here is Solomon making himself symbolically into a living sacrifice because he puts himself on a platform with the same dimensions as the brazen altar, he kneels on it, and he devotes this house that he has made in God's honor. Okay? And this, is what, this too, is what we're invited to do, to become living sacrifices. Okay? Paul writes in Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, 
acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Okay? So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Well, it means on the one hand that you're still alive. But on the other hand, we've died. Okay? And it's kind of like what Solomon did. Solomon continued to live for many years after that day. But he had given ownership of his life to God. And when we become a living sacrifice, uh, sorry, when we become a living sacrifice, as Solomon dedicated his house that he built, we dedicate this house, our bodies that we dwell in. And we devote it to God to be his dwelling place, where our bodies become the dwelling place of his spirit and his presence. But he only does that by divine inspiration. He stands at the door and knocks. And when we open the door, he comes in and has fellowship with us and cohabits with us. Now, there's something else that the first century reader would have seen in Paul's instructions here in Romans 12. What they would have uh, seen in this is something very unique. And it's something we can't afford to miss. Notice how Paul beseeches them to present their bodies as living, their bodies as living sacrifices. Their bodies, the flesh. Well, if we go back to the book of Leviticus, which could be called the handbook of the priesthood, it gives all the details about the sacrifice. And you will find uh, a detail there that is very important. And the detail is this. That any of the mammals, not the birds, that were presented uh, as sacrifices, at the time they were killed, they were all skinned. Okay? The skin, the hides, never went on the altar. And, but what was inside the hide, that went on the altar. And we find this in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 8, where it says, And the priest that offereth any man's burnt offering... Even the priest shall have to himself the skin of the burnt offering which he hath offered. So let's get the picture here. I bring an offering, a bull or a lamb. The priest who is officiating will kill the animal. He would then skin the animal. Then everything that was on side of that, inside of that skin would go on the altar, where it would be burned up as a whole burnt offering. But the skin, the hide, now becomes the property of the priest. Now, when we become a living sacrifice, our hides, our skins, now become the property of our priest, our high priest, which is Jesus. But what's inside? Our hearts, our dreams, and our desires, our ambitions, all those go on the altar. Okay? When you picture this altar and the fire, you can look at it as like a spiritual elevator, because what goes on goes up. Okay? So what's inside goes up. And it's given to God. But my hide is left behind. But it is no longer my own. It belongs to my priest, my high priest Jesus. Okay? Now, what would a priest do with all of these hides? I don't think they made shoes or purses out of them myself. Okay? But one of the things I do know for sure that they did with them is what we're going to see in this photo. Okay? This guy, he's writing God's word. And he's making copies of the Bible. But what he's writing on is not paper. What he's writing on is, on is the skin or the hide of a kosher animal. So in ancient times, when the temple or the tabernacle stood, these skins would be used to record God's word. They would then be used to make copies of the books of the Bible. They would use them to make little scrolls that go into the hand to fill them, these boxes on the arms and the forehead or in the mezuzah boxes, which are nailed to the doorpost of Jewish homes. But whichever way 
uh, you see it, the hides are used to proclaim God's word. Okay? So if you make yourself a living sacrifice, then what's inside? Your hearts, your dreams, your ambitions. You give those to God, and you are His. Your life is His. But your hide is left behind and is now the property of the high priest. And he wants you to use it to proclaim his word to the world. If you are a living sacrifice, then your words and your deeds are God's message to those around you. And just as Jesus is the word made flesh, he wants you and I to also be his word made flesh. He wants us to be living epistles. Living letters on whom he can write his message. Sorry, I mean, in case you're wondering, I really do have to follow notes word by word because when I have an interpreter, I give them a copy and it's how we follow along best. So, so you know, this is, this is how I work. <laughs> okay. All right. So now, let's look now at, the, at a Hebrew key word that will help us go a little deeper. And it's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse uh, 13. It says, for Solomon had made a brazen scaffold, five cubits long, five cubits broad, three cubits high, and he set it in the midst of the court, and upon it he stood and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands toward heaven. So it tells us that Solomon constructed a bronze scaffold, or a platform. But in Hebrew, it's the word kior. Now, kior has two meanings in Hebrew. On one hand, it can mean a laver or a wash basin. On the other hand, it can mean a stove. So you notice one is for water and the other is for fire, which are very opposite things. Now, the word kior is also used in regard to the building of the tabernacle and the temple. When they were told to build a laver or a kior between the altar uh, and the door of the tabernacle in order for the priests to wash their hands and feet and to wash certain parts of the sacrifice. So that's that circular thing you see there. Okay. So think about this for a moment. The scaffold or the platform that Solomon uh, had built, he built it with the same dimensions as the altar, a place of burning. But its name also means a laver for washing. So we can see Solomon standing in a place of fire and also in a place of water. Okay, And what, let's consider what the Bible says about God's word. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, it says, Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Fire, right? Ephesians 5, 26, that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Well, now it's water. So God's word is both fire and water, depending on the job that it's doing. And this is an important theme in the Bible. When you see fire and water working together in the Bible, you're going to find God's presence there. So now let's turn to Numbers chapter 31, verse 23. And this is where God is giving the uh, instructions for the cleansing of various vessels. <clears throat> uh, yeah, third, chapter 31, verse 23. It says, Everything that may abide the fire, ye shall make it go through the fire. And it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall be purified with water of separation. And all that abideth not the fire, ye shall make go through the water. So if it can stand the fire, put it through the fire. But if it can't endure the fire, cleanse it with water. 
So what's the purpose of this? This is an instruction to you and I, because we're a vessel in the Lord's service. And we're like wineskins, or like a house, or like that cup that Brother Branham describes that God picks up and cleans up and puts into service. We need to be cleansed. But we are composed of two, ver- two different kinds of substances. On the one hand, we are physical, made of dirt and mostly water. Yet on the other hand, we are also made up of spirit, which is non-physical. Our bodies don't do well with fire, but they love the water. Our spirit, on the other hand, can't connect with water, but is an object of fire. Our bodies are made up of about 70 plus percent water, and yet inside we have combustion going on. Okay? There's a fire inside of us, which is why we have a temperature. Okay? We burn calories, and calories are a measure of heat. You have a fire in you that is about 98.6 or 98.7 degrees. Any more than that, and you're sick. Any less than that, and you're dead. Okay? So we are burning, and yet we are mostly water. Okay? We're very unique creatures. But we need to be cleansed, both physically and spiritually. So part of us goes through the water, immersion, baptism. Okay? The other part of us, the invisible, spiritual part, goes through the spiritual fire. Okay? John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but there will be one who comes after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how every man's work will be tested and go through uh, the fire to see what will survive. Whatever the fire consumes, well, that was just surface fleshly work. But if it endures, it is silver and gold and precious stones. All of us pass through the fire, but that part of us yeah, I'll pass to the fire, but that part of us, our bodies, have to go through the water. God wants us to be pure, and fire and water are his means of producing that purity. Okay? Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And this was the picture that Solomon was displaying while he was on his scaffold. And he he was demonstrating a living sacrifice. Now, just to be clear, the fire is not always contained to the spiritual, and the washing is not always to be uh, confined to the physical. Brother Branham says that our hearts are washed by the word. Well, that's more spiritual than it's physical. But we also know that the physical earth will be purified by fire. It all comes down to what can stand the fire goes through the fire, and what can't will be washed instead. So listen carefully to how Brother Branham describes the process. And I want you to pay particular attention to the role of fire and water. And we're reading a quote from the message, You Must Be Born Again, 1961. I'm just going to start in paragraph uh, 76. Quote, Now your soul is laid upon the altar of God's brass judgment. Then God receives the sacrifice and he cuts himself off. Now it shows that you haven't received it yet. If it does, if you're still alive in the world, God's never took it. Now, you people talking about getting the Holy Ghost and how you have to wait so long, here you are, until God receives that sacrifice, until it's laid on his judgment there, until his judgment has actually killed your senses. You might say, well, I'm going to turn a new page. That ain't it. Well, I know I used to smoke. I'm going to quit smoking. That still ain't it. Until God receives that sacrifice, 
on his brass altar. His altar is judgment. And what is his judgment? Death. That's the penalty. The soul that sinneth, it remains in that shall die. I don't care what you've done. Jesus says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, haven't I done this and done that? He said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. See, when that sacrifice is received by the fire and it goes up like that and the smoke goes up, you rise with your sacrifice into the heavenlies and you're sealed away from the things of the world then. Our soul is on his altar. What are you done then? After you've died, then what uh, are you to do? Then you are conceived anew. You are conceived anew. You was first conceived in iniquity. Now you're conceived in something new. What is it? The living word. Amen. Well, that changes it now, doesn't it? Now we're through the struggle. After seeing what you got to do, now what happens? You're conceived anew in the living word. What is it? The word becomes alive in you. You begin to see things different. Where once you couldn't see that, now you do see it. There's something different now. Makes all the scriptures come together. Makes everything dovetail uh, just right. Amen. Then now, something's begun to happen. Now you die to your own thinking. Now you're conceived because we are washed by the water of the word. Is that right? So he starts off with the altar of sacrifice. He's finishing up with the washing of the water. So what Brother Branham just described was what Solomon was demonstrating with his, with his scaffold. Now a last word about altars. But before I do, I need to pause for a moment. Because my voice is going to go squeaky. And I don't think you'll appreciate that. Bearing with me. <clears throat> All right. Last word about altars. Now, altars in ancient times were built with a horn on each corner. And the purpose was to tie down the sacrifice. However, the Hebrews never did, needed to do that with their altars. Because they would kill the animal first before putting it on the altar. Therefore, the horns were just considered to be decorative. But there is a connection uh, with something that God spoke in Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, verses... Uh, 37 to 40, he says this. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you as, uh, for a fringe, that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart, and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a whoring, that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. Now, religious Jews today, they still wear a garment like that under their clothes. You'll see they have four cords, which they leave hanging out. And the purpose of those cords is to remind them never to forget Numbers chapter 15. Always remember the, 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 the word. Keep meditating on the word. Now, Paul tells us that these things in the Old Testament are shadows of the new, right? So what are the horns of the altar a shadow of? What are the fringes on the garments a shadow of? 
Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Here's the problem with a living sacrifice. It wants to try and crawl off the altar. So you need to tie it down. Okay. So if we're living sacrifices, we're not going to want to stand the heat when it's turned up. We're going to want to crawl off. Our flesh ain't going to take it. So we need something to tie us down. The Word of God. That's what keeps us tied to the altar when the heat gets turned up. Amen? God bless you. So ends the lesson. Thank you. Thank you. This morning, we had a 747 land and take off. <laughs> this evening, we had a helicopter come down and take off. <laughs> I always appreciate Brother Doug's insight, the little things. You know, Brother Branham would talk about the numerics of the Bible. And he would tell us, he said, if you understood the numerics, and he would bring it into... Uh, terms. He says, you don't name your child Elvis. He said, that's a number that the numerics of that name only came through this last age. And he would use others like Ricky and, and he would tell us those things. So every time we, we look at the Bible, okay, I never, I never thought that. Like I, I, I've read uh, from Second Chronicles chapter 6, I never pictured Solomon getting on a platform. I, I, I'll tell you what, and I just learned something new today. And I thought, wow, that, that's tremendous. And, and uh, so, and then to tie that into an altar, and then to tie that into your body. I remember last time when, when Brother Doug spoke on the menorah pattern. And actually, our bodies fit the menorah pattern. Well, we learned another part today. I, 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 I didn't see the water and the fire part together. And yeah, you're right. They... They do cross, but they're, they're each succinct in their own. And so we thank God that he knows how to deal with us and he knows how to work with us. You know, the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And uh, God's desiring us to, to bring our, our sacrifice, uh, living sacrifice, and to bring it to the altar. And, and yeah, you're right, to tie it down sometimes and... Amen. How many say, I want to serve God a little bit better, and I want to fit the pattern? You know, God did all of these things, but he's expressing them in a type. Let's stand together. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Oh, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary.
Oh uh-huh.